Section 51 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 1, Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dave Wills. The Rattlesnake's History, Part 1. In case the reader should doubt the accuracy of any of the statements relative to the employment of the youth of both sexes in the English coal mines which he may find in this chapter, we beg to refer him to the report and appendix to the report of the Children's Employment Commission, presented to both Houses of Parliament by command of Her Majesty, in 1842. I was born in a coal mine in Staffordshire. My father was a married man, with five or six children by his wife. My mother was a single woman who worked for him in the pit. I was, therefore, illegitimate. But this circumstance was neither considered disgraceful to my mother nor to myself, morality being on so low a scale amongst the mining population generally as almost to amount to promiscuous intercourse. My mother was only eighteen when I was born. She worked in the pit up to the very hour of my birth, and when she found the labour pains coming on, she threw off the belt and chain with which she had been dragging a heavy corf or wicker basket full of coal up a slanting road, retired to a damp cave in a narrow passage leading to the foot of the shaft, and there gave birth to her child. That child was myself. She wrapped me up in her petticoat, which was all the clothing she had on at the time, and crawled with me along the passage, which was about two feet and a half high, to the bottom of the shaft. There she got into the basket, and was drawn up a height of about two hundred and thirty feet, holding the rope with her right hand, and supporting me on her left arm. She often told me those particulars, and said how she thought she would faint as she was ascending in the rickety vehicle, and how difficult she found it to maintain her hold of the rope, weak and enfeebled as she was. She, however, reached the top in safety, and hastened home to her miserable hovel, for she was an orphan and lived by herself. In a week she was up again and back to her work in the pit and she hired a bit of a girl, about seven or eight years old, to take care of me. How my infancy passed, I, of course, can only form an idea by the mode of treatment generally adopted towards babies in the mining districts, and under such circumstances as those connected with my birth. My mother would perhaps come up from the pit once in the middle of the day to give me my natural nourishment, and when I screamed during her absence, the little girl who acted as my nurse most probably thrust a teaspoonful of some strong opiate down my throat to make me sleep and keep me quiet. Many children are killed by this treatment, but the reason of death in such cases is seldom known, because the coroner's assistance is seldom required in the mining districts. When I was seven years old, my mother one day told me that it was now high time for me to go down with her into the pit and earn some money by my own labour. My father, who now and then called to see me of a Sunday and brought me a cake or a toy, also declared that I was old enough to help my mother. So it was decided that I should go down into the pit. I remember that I was very much frightened at the idea, and cried very bitterly when the dreaded day came. It was a cold winter's morning. I recollect that well, and the snow was very thick upon the ground. I shivered with chilliness and terror as my mother led me to the pit. She gave me a good scolding because I whimpered, and then a good beating because I cried lustily. 
but everything combined to make me afraid. It was as early as five on that cold wintry morning that I was proceeding to a scene of labour which I knew to be far, far under the earth. The dense darkness of the hour was not even relieved by the white snow upon the ground, but over the country were seen blazing fires on every side, fires which appeared to me to be issuing from the very bowels of the earth, but which were in reality burning upon the surface for the purpose of converting coke into coal and there were also blazing fields of bituminous shale, and all the tall chimneys of the great towers of the iron furnaces vomited forth flames, the whole scene thus forming a picture well calculated to appall and startle an infant mind. I remember at this moment what my feelings were then, as well as if the incident I am relating had only occurred yesterday. During the daylight I had seen the lofty chimneys giving vent to columns of dense smoke, the furnaces putting forth torrents of lurid flame, and the coke fires burning upon the ground. But that was the first time I had ever beheld those meteors blazing amongst utter darkness, and I was afraid. I was afraid. The shaft was perfectly round, and not more than four feet in diameter. The mode of ascent and descent was precisely that of a well, with this difference, that instead of a bucket there was a stout iron bar, about three feet long, attached in the middle, and suspended horizontally, to the end of the rope. From each end of this bar hung chains with hooks, to draw up the baskets of coal. This apparatus was called the clatch harness. Two people ascended or descended at a time by these means. They had to sit cross-legged, as it were, upon the transverse bar, and cling to the rope. Thus the person who got on first sat upon the bar, and the other person sat astraddle on the first one's thighs. An old woman presided at the wheel which wound up or lowered the rope sustaining the clutch harness, and as she was by no means adverse to a dram, the lives of the persons employed in the mine were constantly at the mercy of that old drunken harridan. Moreover, there seemed to me to be a great danger in the way in which the miners got on and off the clatch harness. One moment's giddiness, a missing of the hold of the rope, and down to the bottom of the shaft headlong. When the clatch harness was drawn up to the top, the old woman made the handle fast by a bolt drawn out from the upright post, and then, grasping a hand of both persons on the harness at the same time, brought them by main force to land. A false step on the part of that old woman, the failure of the bolt which stopped the rotary motion of the roller on which the rope was wound, or the slipping of the hands which she grasped in hers, and a terrible accident must have ensued. But to return to my first descent into the pit. My mother, who was dressed in a loose jacket open in front, and trousers, which besides her shoes were the only articles of clothing on her, she wearing neither underwear nor stockings, leapt upon the clatch-iron as nimbly as a sailor in the rigging of his ship. She then received me from the outstretched arm of the old woman, and made me sit in the easiest and safest posture she could imagine. But when I found myself being gradually lowered down in a depth as black as night, I felt too terror-struck even to cry out, and had not my mother held me tight with one hand, I should have fallen precipitately into that hideous dark profundity. At length we reached the bottom, where my mother lifted me, half dead with giddiness and fright, from the clatch-iron. 
I felt the soil, cold, damp, and muddy under my feet. A lamp was burning in a shade, suspended in a little recess in the side of the shaft, and my mother lighted a bit of candle which she had brought with her, and which she stuck into a piece of clay to hold it. Then I perceived a long dark passage, about two feet and a half high, branching off from the foot of the shaft. My mother went on her hands and knees, and told me to creep along with her. The passage was nearly six feet wide, and thus there was plenty of room for me to keep abreast of her. Had not this been the case, I am sure that I never should have had the courage either to proceed or follow her, for nothing could be more hideous to my infantile imagination than that low, yawning, black-mouthed cavern, running into the very bowels of the earth, and leading I knew not whither. Indeed, as I walked in a painfully stooping posture along by my mother's side, my fancy conjured up all kinds of horrors. I trembled lest some invisible hand should suddenly push forth from the side of the passage and clutch me in its grasp. I dreaded lest every step I took might precipitate me into some tremendous abyss or deep well. I thought that the echoes which I heard afar off, and which were the sounds of the miner's pickaxe or the rolling corves on the rails, were terrific warnings that the earth was falling in and would bury us alive. Then, when the light of my mother's candle suddenly fell upon some human being groping his or her way along in darkness, I shuddered at the idea of encountering some ferocious monster or hideous spectre. In a word, my feelings as I toiled along that subterranean passage were of so terrific a nature that they produced upon my memory an impression which never can be effaced and which makes me turn cold all over as I contemplate those feelings now. You must remember that I had been reared in a complete state of mental darkness, and that no enlightened instruction had dispelled the clouds of superstition which naturally obscure the juvenile mind. I could not read. I had not even been taught my alphabet. I had not heard of such a name as Jesus Christ, and all the mention of God that had ever met my ears was in the curses and execrations which fell from the lips of my father, my mother, her acquaintances, and even the little girl who had nursed me. You cannot wonder, then, if I was appalled when I first found myself in that strange and terrifying place. At length we reached the end of the passage and struck into another, which echoed with the noise of pickaxes. In a few moments I saw the undergoers, or miners, lying on their sides, and with their pickaxes breaking away the coal. They did not work to a greater height than two feet, for fear, as I subsequently learnt, that they should endanger the security of the roof of the passage, the seam of coal not being a thick one. I well remember my infantile alarm and horror when I perceived that these men were naked, stark naked but my mother did not seem to be the least abashed or dismayed. On the contrary, she laughed and exchanged a joke with each one as we passed. In fact, I afterwards discovered that Bet Flathers was a great favourite with the miners. Well, we went on until we suddenly came upon a scene that astonished me not a little. The passage abruptly opened into a large room, an immense cave hollowed out of the coal in a scene that I since learnt to be twenty feet in thickness. This cave was lighted by a great number of candles, and at a table sat about twenty individuals, men, women, and children, all at breakfast. There they were, as black as negroes, eating, laughing, chattering, and drinking, 
but to my surprise and disgust i saw that the women and young girls were all naked from the waist upwards and many of the men completely so and yet there was no shame no embarrassment but the language that soon met my ears i could not comprehend half of it but what i did understand made me afraid my mother caught me by the hand and led me to the table where i found my father he gave us some breakfast and in a short time the party broke up the men women and children separating to their respective places of labour my mother and myself accompanied one of the men for my mother had ceased to work for my father since she had borne a child to him and as his wife had insisted upon their separation in respect to labour in the mine the name of the man for whom my mother worked was phil blossom he was married but had no children his wife was a cripple having met with some accident in the mine and could not work he was therefore obliged to employ someone to carry his coal from the place where he waned to the cart that conveyed it to the foot of the shaft until i went down the mine my mother had carried the coal for him and also hurried or dragged the cart but she now made me fill one cart while she hurried another thus at seven years old i had to carry about fifty-six pounds of coal in a wooden bucket when the passage was high enough i carried it on my back but when it was too low i had to drag or push it along as best i could some parts of the passages were only twenty-two inches in height this was where the workings were in very narrow seams and the difficulty of dragging such a weight at such an age can be better understood than explained i can well recollect that when i commenced that terrible labour the perspiration co-mingling with my tears poured down my face phil blossom worked in a complete state of nudity and my mother stripped herself to the waist to perform her task she had to drag a cart holding seven hundredweight a distance of at least two hundred yards for ours was a very extensive pit and had numerous workings and cuttings running a considerable way underground the person who does this duty is called a hurrier the process itself is termed tramming and the cart is denominated a ship the work was certainly harder than that of slaves in the west indies or convicts in norfolk island my mother had a girdle round her waist and to that girdle was fastened a chain which passed between her legs and was attached to the skip she then had to go down on her hands and knees with a candle fastened to a strap on her forehead and drag the skip through the low passages or else to maintain a curved or stooping posture in the high ones phil blossom was what was called a getter he first made a long straight cut with a pickaxe underneath the part of the seam where he was working this was called holing and as it was commenced low down the getter was obliged to lie flat on his back or on his side and work for a long time in that uneasy manner i did as well as i could with the labour allotted to me but it was dreadful work i was constantly knocking my head against the low roofs of the passages or against the rough places of the sides at other times i fell flat on my face with the masses of coal upon me or else i got knocked down by a cart or by some collier in the dark as i toiled along the passages my eyes blinded with my tears or with the dust of the mine many many weeks passed away and at length i grew quite hardened in respect to those sights and that language which had at first disgusted me 
I became familiar with the constant presence of naked men and half-naked women, and the most terrible oaths and filthy expressions ceased to startle me. I walked boldly into the great cavern which I have before described, and which served as a meeting-place for those who took their meals in the mine. I associated with the boys and girls that worked in the pit, and learned to laugh at an obscene joke, or to practice petty thefts of candles, food, or even drink which the colliers left in the cavern, or at their places of work. The mere fact of the boys and girls in mines all meeting together, without any control, without anyone to look after them, is calculated to corrupt all those who may well be disposed. I remained as a carrier of coal along the passages till I was ten years old. I was then ordered to convey my load, which by this time amounted to a hundredweight on each occasion, up a ladder to a passage over where I had hitherto worked. This load was strapped by a leather round my forehead, and as the ladder was very rudely formed, and the steps were nearly two feet apart, it was with great difficulty that I could keep my balance. I have seen terrible accidents happen to young girls working in that way. Sometimes the strap or tag round one person's forehead has broken, and the whole load has fallen on the girl climbing up behind. Then the latter has been precipitated to the bottom of the dike, the great masses of coal falling on top of her. On other occasions I have seen the girls lose their balance and fall off the ladder their burden of coals, as in the other case, showering upon them or their companions behind. The work was indeed most horrible. A slave-ship could not have been worse. If I did not do exactly as Phil Blossom told me, the treatment I received from him was horrible, and my mother did not dare interfere, or he would serve her in the same manner. He thrashed me with his fist or with a stick until I was bruised all over, my flesh was often marked with deep wheels for weeks together. One day he nipped me with his nails until he actually cut quite through my ear. He often pulled my hair till it literally gave way in his hand, and sometimes he would pelt me with coals. He thought nothing of giving me a kick that would send me with great violence across the passage, or dash me against the opposite side. On one occasion he was in such a rage, because I had accidentally put out the candle which he had to light him at his work, that he struck a random blow at me with his pickaxe in the dark, and cut a great gash in my head. All the miners in pits baste and bray, that is, beat and flog their helpers. You would be surprised if I was to tell you how many people in the pit were either killed or severely injured by accidents every year. But there are so many dangers to which the poor miners are exposed, falling down the shaft, the rope sustaining the clutch harness breaking, being drawn over the roller, the falls of coals out of the corves in their ascent, drowning in the mines from the sudden breaking in of water from old workings, explosions of gas, choke damp. Author's note. Explosions of carbonated hydrogen gas, which is usually called by the miners sulphur, sometimes prove very destructive, not only by scorching to death, but by the suffocation of foul air after the explosion is over, and also by the violence by which persons are driven before it, or are smothered by the ruins thrown down upon them. Appendix to First Report End of Author's Note Falling in on the roofs or passages the breaking of ladders or well staircases, 
being run over by the tram-wagons or carts dragged by horses, the explosion of gunpowder used in breaking away huge masses of coal, and several other minor accidents, are all perpetually menacing the life or limbs of those poor creatures who supply the mineral that cheers so many thousands of firesides. Deaths from accidents of this nature were seldom, if ever, brought under the notice of the coroner. Indeed, to save time, it was usual to bury the poor victims within twenty-four or thirty-six hours after their decease. I earned three shillings a week when I was ten years old, and my mother eleven. You may imagine, then, that we ought to have been pretty comfortable, but our household was just as wretched as any other in the mining districts. Filth and poverty are the characteristics of the collier population. Nothing can be more wretched, nothing more miserable than their dwellings. The huts in which they live are generally from ten to twelve feet square, each consisting only of one room. I have seen a man and his wife and eight or ten children all huddling together in that one room, and yet they might have earned by their joint labour thirty shillings or more a week. Perhaps a pig, a jackass, or fowls form part of the family. And then the furniture, not a comfort, scarcely a necessity, and yet this absence of even such articles as bedsteads is upon principle. The colliers do not like to be encumbered with household goods because they are often obliged to flit, that is, to leave one place of work and seek for another. Such a thing as drainage is almost completely unknown in these districts, and all the filth is permitted to accumulate before the door. The colliers are a dirty set of people, but, poor creatures, how can they well be otherwise? They descend into the mines at a very early hour in the morning. They return home at a very late hour in the evening, and then they are too tired to attend to habits of cleanliness. Besides, it is so natural for them to say, Why should we wash ourselves to-night, since to-morrow we must come back black and dirty again? Or, why should we wash ourselves just for the sake of sleeping with a clean skin? As for the boys and girls, they are often so worn out, so thoroughly exhausted, that they go to rest without their suppers. They cannot keep themselves awake when they get home. I know that this was often and often my case, and I have preferred, indeed, I have been compelled by sheer fatigue to go to bed before my mother could prepare anything to eat. Again, how can the collier's home possibly be comfortable? He makes his wife and children toil with him in the mine. He married a woman from the mine, and neither she nor her daughters know anything of housekeeping. How can disorder be prevented from creeping into the collier's dwelling when no one is there in the daytime to attend to it? Then all the money which they can save from the tommy shop, of which I shall speak presently, goes for whisky. Husband and wife, sons and daughters, all look after the whisky. The habits of the colliers are hereditarily depraved. They are perpetuated from father to son, from mother to daughter. None is better nor worse than his parents were before him. Rags and filth, squalor and dissipation, crushing toil and hideous want, ignorance and immorality, these are the features of the collier's home and the characteristics of the collier's life. Our home was not a whit better than that of any of our fellow labourers, nor was my mother less attached to whisky than her neighbours. 
But the chief source of poverty and frequent want, amounting at times almost to starvation, amongst persons earning a sufficiency of wages, is the truck system. This atrociously oppressive method consists of paying the colliers' wages in goods or partly in goods through the medium of the tommy shop. The proprietor of a tommy shop has an understanding with the owners of the mines in his district, and the owners agreed to pay the persons in their employment once a month or once a fortnight. The consequence is that the miners require credit during the interval, and they are compelled to go to the tommy shop where they eat, obtain their bread, bacon, cheese, meat, groceries, potatoes, chandlery, and even clothes. The proprietor of the tommy shop sends his book to the clerk of the owner of the mine the day before the wages are paid, and thus the clerk knows how much to stop from the wages of each individual, for the benefit of the shopkeeper. If the miners and their wives do not go to the tommy shop for their domestic articles, they instantly lose their employment to the mine, in consequence of the understanding between their employer and the shopkeeper. Perhaps this would not be so bad if the tommy shops were honest, because it is very handy for a collier to go to a store which contains every article that he may require but the tommy shop charges twenty-five or thirty per cent dearer than any other tradesman, so that if a collier and his family can earn between them thirty shillings a week, he loses seven or eight shillings out of that amount. In the course of a year, about twenty pounds out of his seventy-five go to the tommy shop for nothing but interest on the credit afforded. That interest is divided between the tommy shopkeeper and the coal mine proprietor. In the district where my mother and I lived, there was no such thing at all as payment of wages in the current money of the kingdom. The tommy shopkeeper paid the wages for the proprietors once a month. And how do you think he settled them? In ticket money. This coinage consisted of pewter medals or markers with the sum that they represented and the name of the tommy shop on them. Thus there were half-crowns, shillings, sixpences and half-pence but this money could only be passed at the tommy shop from which it was issued, and there it must be taken out in goods. So you see that what with the truck system and the tommy shop, the poor miners are regularly swindled out of at least one-fourth part of their fair earning. The wages in my time were subject to great changes. I have known men earn twenty-five shillings a week at one time and twelve or fifteen at another and out of that they were obliged to supply their own candles and grease for the wheels of the carts or trams. The cost of this was about three pence a day. Then again the fines were frequent and vexatious. It was calculated that they amounted to a penny a day per head. These sums all went into the coffers of the coal-owners. Such was the state of superstitious ignorance which prevailed in the mines that every one believed in ghosts and spirits. Even old men were often afraid to work in isolated places, and the spots where deaths from accident arose were particularly avoided. It was stated that the spectres of the deceased haunted the scenes of their violent departures from this world. End of section 51